Good to see you. Okay, so uh, we are probably talking about the most controversial, debated topic in this whole series, our question series. And uh, so I'm going to try to move quick because this is a lot to cover, so I'm going to try to go very quickly so you guys can have a discussion at the end. So today's question is how can a loving God send people to hell? And we know this topic is controversial. It's been debated for centuries. We're going to solve it all in 35 minutes or less. So we can't address everything in one passage or in one message, but I want to, here's something you can read. If you like to read these like books that are not huge theological at, academic journals, but they're readable, um, this is a book you can read by Francis Chan, Preston Sprinkle, on this topic. It's very well done, pretty concise. If you like to read something like that, you can get after it and read that book. I'd recommend it. Um, so we know hell's a difficult idea. It's why many people don't believe in hell, that it even exists, or that God would send people there. Uh, so throughout history, there have been these different people that have thought certain things about hell. So the first guy I want to show you is a guy named Origen. He looks like a really happy guy. And uh, he was the fir- one of the first ones that, that thought of the purgatorial view of hell, which was hell's a place that people go, God purifies them, through purgatory, and then they come out and they enter eternal life with God. He's one that, that first kind of thought of that idea, um, which I don't think is a biblical idea, but that's what he came up with. Then there's this next picture, which is a picture of Dante's Inferno from his Divine Comedy. And this is an artistic rendition of what um, of, of his vision of hell that he put forth in, in his Inferno uh, deal. And if you've, ever, if you've ever, ever heard someone say something like, I was in a traffic jam, and it was like the ninth ring of hell. Um, they're referring to this idea. It's different rings of hell is how he described it. And uh, he might be the first one that ever had the concept of hell being beneath the surface of the earth, which is also is not biblical, but that's, he may have been the first one that thought of that idea. And then there's these next theologians here um, that had this certain idea of what hell might be like. And... Uh, so, I'm a child of the 80s, so these guys from the 70s and 80s, and if you know anything about the 80s and that era, um, rock and roll was known for two things, hell and hairspray. It was like those two things went together with the, the bands of those eras. So, um, so, anyway, these guys, they um, had some songs about hell. One of their songs was stated, hell ain't, a bad, hell ain't a Bad Place to Be. They also sang the song, famous song, Highway to Hell, and they really celebrated those ideas in their music. Um, when I was growing up, there was a lot of debate about, you know, what does ACDC mean? It stands for Antichrist Devil's Children. And everyone thought these things, and then they're like, no, nah, not really, but that's what people thought. And uh, so, yeah, these guys. And then this last guy, um, a guy named Rob Bell, he wrote a book called Love Wins many, many years ago now. And he was a pastor, he was a popular speaker, uh, getting really kind of famous in the Christian world. And then came out with a book called Love Wins and basically revealed that he believes that everyone ends up okay in the end. And that's his theology. And uh, at that point, it, he kind of went um, towards Oprah. And I, I mean that literally. He actually went and joined the Oprah network and joined her empire, which is kind of fitting, I think, for how his theology ended up working out. So um, Someone else I would strongly disagree with, but someone I think has led a lot of people astray with his theology. He really teaches that it's not about going to hell when someone dies, but it's hell's more about the hells on earth. Things like rape, genocide, murder, 
And that's what hell is. Hell is on earth, not necessarily something that happens with someone's eternal destiny. And then there's this next guy, long quote. He said this. This is Clark Pinnock, a theologian, said, Let me say at the outset, I consider the concept of hell as endless torment in body and mind, an outrageous doctrine, a theological and moral enormity, a bad doctrine of the tradition which needs to be changed. How can Christians possibly project a deity of such cruelty and vindictiveness whose ways include inflicting everlasting torture upon his creatures, however sinful they may have been? Surely a God who would do such a thing is more nearly like Satan than like God, at least by any moral standards and by the gospel itself. Now, when you read that, on the one hand, I know that you feel appalled that someone would say that about God. But on the other hand, we feel what he feels. I think we have to at least admit that. We feel some emotion that he's talking about that you resonate with and you're scared to embrace that you feel that way. I know I am. And so we feel what he feels. Now, most of us know we're supposed to believe in hell, but then we have these emotions that kind of get in the way and we have a hard time embracing how it seems portrayed in the Bible itself and also just in historical Christian doctrine. And so hell is not some abstract concept. It becomes very personal to us especially when you think about a friend or relative that you may have lost that wasn't a believer. Like for me, my uncle was an atheist, and he heard the gospel many, many times, but he never believed. And he asked me to do his funeral. And I, I thought, how, how, what am I going to say at this man's funeral in front of all these unbelievers that knew he was not a believer? And I know he's not a believer. What am I going to say at this person's funeral, my uncle? And so it's a very hard thing to navigate, and I, I dealt with this, the emotion that we're talking about, as I prepared to preach his funeral. And so I know it's harder. It's not just this abstract idea. It's very difficult when it gets personal like that. And I know you're thinking about people, and I'm thinking about people. So I'm not asking you today to turn off your emotions, and just have some intellectual discussion about the topic of hell. I'm not asking you to do that. I'm actually asking you to keep your emotions turned on. We, we need to feel the weight of this topic today. This is a very, very, uh, of course, difficult thing to talk about, but the goal here is not to walk out of here feeling good about hell. The goal is not to walk away and say, you know, after Dave kind of made his points, I, I actually feel really good about the concept of hell. Like, that's not the point of this morning. You're not going to feel that way when you leave here today. But this is a very necessary discussion. So I want to start our discussion with a passage that doesn't mention hell or the concept of hell in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 to 14. So I want to frame our discussion with this passage. In verse 12, Isaiah 40, it says this, Who has measured the waters... In the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens, who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the, did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? So why am I starting with this passage? This passage reminds us that there are things 
about God that we will never understand. So some of you look at God and you say things like, I don't understand everything about him, so I'm going to throw out the entire thing. I can't comprehend all there is to know about God, and it makes sense in my mind, so I'm just going to throw out this whole thing because I don't understand it. And here's what I would caution you about, is the Bible itself tells you that you won't understand everything about God. So it makes no sense for you to pick up this book and say, I can't comprehend him, shuck the whole thing out, because the Bible tells you that that's what's going to happen, that you're not going to understand everything about God. And it also says that you can't turn the tables on God, and you can't assume the role of teacher and make God your student. We do this all the time. We always turn the tables on God thinking that he is somehow inferior to us and we're going to teach him what morality is. So this passage um, refers to the heavens. And I think at times we forget how big God is and how magnificent he is. You ever go outside at night and just look at the sky and just, like, you look at pictures like this, this next picture, and... You can't see this from Texas, obviously, but, um, or things like this. But this is what is seen through massive, massive telescopes. And when you think of how immense and big and amazing God is, there's another passage in Isaiah where it says, God knows every star and he calls each one of them by name. God knows every star and calls each one by name. Do you know how many stars there are in the universe? Do you know there's only 5,000 that are visible to us, whether the naked eye or with a telescope that you might have at home? There are 4 billion stars in our galaxy alone. Do you know they estimate there are 125 billion galaxies? And I have no clue how they got that number. Is there some guy named... Bill at NASA, his job is to count. I have no idea. Like, Bill, what are we up to now? Well, I'd say 125 billion and 13. Like, there's a guy apparently who knows these things. So, when you think of how immense and huge God is, and the Bible says that he knows even the names of the stars, and you think of we worship the God who made all of this. This all-knowing, all-powerful, infinitely wise God. He's the one that made all of this. By comparison, my brain weighs three pounds. Now, some of you may have a little more than that, than what I have, but my brain weighs three pounds. And it's with my little puny three-pound brain that I turn the tables on God and become the teacher, and he becomes the pupil, and I tell him what real justice should look like. And so I want to frame this discussion today with this in mind, because you and I claim to know justice better than the one upon whom it is based. And we do this all the time. And it's why people walk away from their faith, because they turn the tables on God, and they assume the role of teacher, 
and God's the student, and they're going to tell God what's up. And so I want to frame our discussion this way. Most arguments with, against hell start with this statement. I can't believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Beware of the person who starts any conversation with that phrase. I can't believe in a God who would. This is, think of how many people in the Bible could have said that statement and been justified somewhat. Joseph could have said it. I can't believe in a God who would put me in prison for over, for many, many years. Or Daniel could have said it. I can't believe in a God who would allow my people to live in such captivity under Babylon. How about Job? Could Job have said that? I can't believe in a God who would allow me to suffer like he has. So who would, how would you fill in that blank for you? I can't believe in a God who would. You've got to be very careful that you don't live your life with that phrase and how you view God. I can't believe in a God who would. Because if you live your life that way, you have now become the teacher and God has become the student And you're going to teach God a thing or two about justice. And we cannot assume that role with God. There are some things we will not understand this side of eternity. I want to look at some common objections that people have about this concept of judgment as we talk about this topic of hell. The first objection is, I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil. Because I want you to see how our statements can contradict each other sometimes. So a common objection starting off, I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil. We discussed this a few weeks ago. We talked about how can a good God allow evil and suffering, and I tend to lump those together, evil and suffering, because oftentimes suffering happens because of someone committing great evil. It's not always just random. How can a good God allow evil and suffering? And so we said two weeks ago, if there is no God then how do we know to call anything evil? And we wrestled with that question a couple weeks ago. But for many skeptics, just as they say this statement, I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil, they will follow it up with this next statement. It's this. I can't believe in a God of judgment. Now I want you to watch this. Do you see how these statements contradict? I can't believe in a God who allows all this evil On the flip side, I can't believe in a God of judgment. What they're really saying is, I can't believe in a God who judges evil. So on the one hand, they'll say, I can't believe in a God who allows evil. But then when God judges evil, and it's all throughout this book, God judging evil, God taking out justice on evil, they'll say, but I can't believe in a God who deals with evil and puts an end to evil. And you see how there's a contradiction in many of us, and we live in these contradictions and hide behind them as a veil or a facade of intellectualism, and we cast out the whole thing because of our questions. So these contradict at some point. Why does someone say this second statement? I can't believe in a God of judgment. They say it because it goes back to my wife's uh, message two weeks ago where she talked about, isn't Christianity a straitjacket? Because many of us believe that we are free to choose our own destiny, free to make our own path. And if there is a God out there somewhere, he's just like uh, someone on the sidelines just cheering us on, saying like, yeah, 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 you do you. 
That's our image of God. We think of God in that way. But where in history has that God revealed himself? Where in history has that God shown up and said, yep, that's, that's who I am. They're right. That's what I'm all about. You do you. There's no point in history where that God has shown up in history and said, yes, this is who I am and this is what your life is about. And so what we do is there is a God that we want to exist and so we create him in our image. This is what we think he should be like. So we recreate him in our own image, end up with an idol that's not even real. So, as I've been trying to do this whole series, is these questions that people have, and that many of you have in the room, I want you to see how, if you hold these questions, I can't believe in a God of judgment, these, these statements, I can't believe in a God of judgment, you are holding these statements in faith. Because you can't, you can't prove that. In fact, I would even tell you, as you'll see in this, this talk, as you look at how just life works in the here and now, I think we can show that that's not even true. That there is some, some built-in judgment in the natural consequences of this life. And so anyone holding this, these ideas is really holding these things in faith. So I want you to forget eternal judgment for a minute. Let's just look at this life in the here and now. When we look at this life, do we see some judgment for sin in the here and now? I think we do. When a husband or a wife cheats on their spouse, are there natural consequences? Yes, there are. What about someone chasing addiction through alcohol, drugs, pornography? Let me tell you something. When if you're walking down those roads right now, I've seen how that ends. I can't tell you one student that I've had come through here who started living life like that in high school and then continued beyond that point and things worked out okay in the end. I've not seen one person come through unscathed if they live life in such a way. So there's some natural consequences built in to the fabric of the world in which you and I are a part of. And I would ask you this question. If God's weaving natural judgment into our world in such a way, what if that's an act of his grace? What if that's an act of his grace giving us a taste, just a taste of divine judgment to come? Letting you, letting you see that you're your own way, your own actions is a dead end. Letting you get a taste of that in the here and now so that you will hopefully repent, turn to him, and decide to follow after him. What if it's an act of his grace? And if you're offended by the idea of a judging God, I want to ask you this question. Why aren't you offended by the idea of a forgiving God? No one ever asks that question. No one ever walks around the world and says, what's up with all this forgiveness? No one ever says that. No one ever says, you know, I really, really I want to believe in God, but I just can't. There's all this forgiveness in the world. Like, no one ever says that. Do you know that there are going to be some heinous 
people in heaven. Some people that you're like, all right, God, that's, it's kind of hard for me to deal with the fact that you forgave that person. I'm not saying you'll say that when you get there because you'll be fully sanctified and you won't see things that way anymore. But like in the here and now, you see things that way. There are people that you think about, you go, I, I can't fathom that person getting, a, getting forgiveness in the cross. It just doesn't make sense. Do you know if, if you go to the Middle East and talk to a Muslim, do you know one of their biggest hang-ups with Christianity is not that God's a judging God, but that God is a forgiving God. And they surely can't understand how that God would sacrifice himself on a cross. It's one of their biggest hang-ups with Jesus in saying he's not God because they would say God would never stoop to such a level. God would not do that. So therefore, he cannot be God. So no one ever says they're offended by the idea of a forgiving God. Another objection people say, a God of judgment can't be a God of love. Many will say this. They see God's anger and God's love at opposite poles. But this also doesn't hold up. And I'll give you some examples through parenting. Now, loving parents sometimes get angry. I don't mean sinfully, but I mean righteously. We get righteously angry sometimes. They don't get angry in spite of their love. They get angry because of their love. So one example. Uh, my kids, if you've been to my house, you've seen we live on a big hill. There's a big driveway. We have a really steep driveway, and then there's a street, and then across the street is another driveway, real, also really steep. And so it is like a built-in half pipe in the street, right? You can go down our driveway, across the street, and then up the other driveway and come back down again. And when my kids were really small, we were always telling them, hey, be really, really careful in the street. Don't really go in the street. Now they're a little bit older, and so they actually do play in the street, but they do it responsibly, somewhat. So my son recently and my daughter, they're getting real confident. They're going up and down the driveway on their bikes and their scooters, just back and forth, back and forth. I look out the window and be like, I don't see any blood. Okay, we're good. And so recently my son... They're getting super confident doing this. My son and daughter both decide to be on opposite ends. He's in ours. She's on on the other driveway. And they go at the same time, thinking they're going to just somehow magically miss each other. And I'm in the living room working on some stuff, looking out the window. And I don't see it, but I hear it. I hear the collision. And I snap up, and I see just a a cloud of bikes, and then my son is standing up, and he's holding his face, and I can see, oh, this isn't good. He's running towards the house, and I can see his lips starting to swell from 50 feet away. It is that big. I see blood, and I'm like, oh, this is, this is 911 stuff, and so I run to the door to get my son, and he's got um, he had two loose front teeth. He had a big old swollen lip and just blood everywhere. And he's just like, Daddy, help me! And I'm freaking out. Courtney's at work. Get the kids in the car. Make sure I put a shirt on first. And it was crazy. It was crazy. 
But here's what happened. Like, it ended up being to where that situation cost us a lot of money, all right? It was not cheap at all. But why do we tell our kids to be careful when they're playing in the street? We're not telling them that so we can kill their joy. We're trying to increase their joy. Whenever I give my kids rules, and your parents give you all some rules, we're trying to keep them from destroying themselves. That's really what rules are about. Trying to protect life, increase life, increase joy, not steal their joy. And this is, I think, how you and I need to see God's standards, your parents' standards most of the time, is that is the goal. And if your parents get angry or if God gets angry, it's not in spite of their love. It's because of their love. It's because of their love. And it's not just true of parent-child. It's also true of friendship. Some of you have friends that you're passionate about and that you really care about. Well, what did I say? Well, the, the caveat was... I know all y'all have friends, but some of you have friends that are not walking at the moment, is what I meant to say. Some of you have friends that are, and yes, it is true, some of you have friends. Um, Some of you have friends that are not walking at the moment, and you're really torn up about that. Listen to this one statement. Think how we feel when we see someone we love ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign tolerance as we might towards strangers? Far from it. Anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. The anger that you feel towards that friend is actually a sign of love. And there is a righteous anger and a sinful anger, and that's not today's message, but there's, there is anger, and anger isn't the opposite of love, Hate is, the ultimate kind of hate is indifference. To really hate someone means to say, I don't care. And you remove yourself from their life and you're just indifferent about them. If someone's destroying themselves and we love them, we're going to have a righteous anger. So when, when we say God is love, which is popular people to say today, it cannot mean that God loves everything. Because God does not love pride. He does not love cruelty. He does not love injustice. He does not love lying, murder. I mean, he hates these things. So his judgment is a weeding out of things that are trying to destroy us. Another objection, a loving God would not allow hell. You might say, okay, I get it. In order for God to be loving, he gets angry sometimes, so we'll learn and grow like a parent would with a child. Okay, I get that. I understand that. But that still doesn't explain hell, an eternal separation from God. That's just too harsh. I just can't believe in a God like that. And if that's where you are at this moment, I want to turn to the words of Jesus. These are not the kinds of words that make it on t-shirts or coffee mugs. Many people see the God of the Old Testament as different than the God of the New Testament. 
they often see the God of the Old Testament as, you know, mean and judgmental, and the God of the New Testament as nice and gracious. The only problem with that is the Bible. Because you open the Old Testament, and you actually do see a lot of grace in the Old Testament. You open the Bible, and you see Jesus, New Testament. And so the problem with this dichotomy that God's nice in the old and mean in the new, the problem with that also is Jesus, because Jesus talked about hell a lot. Now, most of us, I know, picture Jesus as this smiling, bearded hippie walking around with a baby lamb named Cuddles. That's how you picture him. That's what you picture. And, but what did Jesus actually say about hell? We're going to look at a couple of passages today. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. There's a passage in Matthew 13 where Jesus tells a parable about some wheat and some weeds. The wheat represents believers, and the weeds represent unbelievers. So Matthew 13, we're going to look in verse 30, and then skip down to uh, verse 40. So Matthew chapter 13, verse 30, it says, Let both, meaning the wheat and the weeds, grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles, to be burned, then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. The picture here is of believers and unbelievers living on earth together until judgment. We see judgment in the passage here, but at first it seems kind of vague, and so Jesus explains later on in verse 40. So go down to verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the blazing furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Whoever has ears, let them hear. These words come from the most loving, compassionate, man that ever walked on the face of this earth. How can a loving God send people to hell? A loving God tells us the truth. A loving God gives us a warning. To not warn us would be unloving. And I know these verses can sound hopeless, but I want you to focus in on When you're reading verses about hell, it can get really, really depressing. But I want you to look at verse 41 once again. Look at verse 41. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. This verse describes this final judgment. I want us to... Let's depersonalize this for a moment. Don't turn off your emotions, but let's depersonalize evil for a minute and and just think about the concept of evil. Because when you think about evil, it actually is impossible to depersonalize it, but just for a minute try to do that and think about just the concept of evil. Can you and I rejoice knowing one day that God will bring an end to all evil? I think we can. 
I think we can rejoice knowing that one, get, one day God will bring an end to all evil. Most Hollywood films, if you go watch a movie and you walk out and you say, I hated the ending, it's usually because the bad guy won. Almost every single film is about good conquering evil. Even people that aren't believers know there's something in us that wants good to conquer evil. It's why every movie is about that and why it resonates with us so closely. So why is that so woven into humanity? It's because one day it's going to happen. One day it's going to come to fruition where God is going to conquer all evil. Can you imagine what that will be like when all evil, all wickedness is just locked up for all eternity? That means no more lying, no more cheating, no more stealing, no more divorce, no more murder, no more rape, no more drug abuse, no more child abuse, no more human trafficking, no more disease. I would really like there was no more disease. So how can a good God send people to hell? Why wouldn't a loving God send evil to hell? This guy named Paul Williams says this. Hell is a loving necessity. It is the place in which evil will be locked up forever. In other words, God created hell to deal with evil. He made it to be the final, inescapable prison in which all evil, all rebellion against God will be confined. Never again to exert its poisonous influence. Given all the evil in the world, isn't it a tremendous reassurance to know that it does not go unnoticed by God? It is precisely because he's a God of love that there's a place called hell. Now, I know it's really hard to think about hell and not be overwhelmed. But do you know what else is overwhelming? The daily news. Your parents know it. You know it. You turn on the television. You read the paper. I know you guys don't read the paper. But you look around. The daily news is overwhelming. And it's hard to imagine God how God can allow hell. It's harder to imagine a God who allows evil to continue on into eternity. If hell says anything about God, it says that God will one day triumph over evil. Hell will be the final victory over evil, but it wasn't his first victory. His first victory was at the cross. His first victory was the cross and the resurrection. If you're having a hard time with the idea of hell, I want you to think about the cross for a moment. Sinclair Ferguson says, Here then on the cross is all that makes hell into hell. Darkness, pain, isolation, sin-bearing, divine judgment, curse, alienation, 
utter darkness, separation from God, if we need to be convinced of the reality of hell, all we need to do is to consider the cross. It is all there. In the cross, Jesus was separate from the Father so that you and I don't have to be. A good God gives us a warning. A good God provides a way out. And so I want to speak for a minute, Just to, if you're someone that would consider yourself not yet a follower of Christ, I want to talk to you for a few seconds. You think God is good and that he would never send you to hell. And I would say you're right about his goodness, but his goodness demands justice. And the way God has set things up is either Jesus pays for our sins or we pay for our sins. And I would encourage you to let him pay. Why would you not let him pay? He's offering to pay for your sins. Let him pay so that you don't have to. There's a passage in Romans chapter 1 that I think can relate to someone that's not yet a believer, and it says, Romans 1, verses 24 to 25, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Why do I bring this passage up? Because I think it's clear in Romans 1, whenever we reject God in this life, in the here and now, there is a handing, a progressive handing over that happens where God hands us over to our sin. And that happens in this life. And so if we want freedom from God, we're going to get freedom. We're going to have freedom. We're free to be selfish. We're free to exploit other people. We're free to steal, lie, and hate. But in the end, we're also going to get freedom. We're going to get freedom from his goodness, freedom from his provision, freedom from his joy, freedom from his comfort, freedom from his protection. Hell is God giving us exactly what we want, which is freedom from him. And hell is the final handover that Romans 1 is talking about. And so a good God gives us a warning. A good God provides a way out. That's what a good God does. Now, if you're a believer, I also want to talk to you for a second. Because if you're like most church people, we don't really think we deserve hell. Hell's for the most heinous people. We don't think of ourselves as really deserving separation from God, do we? We're not that bad. But if the cross reminds us of anything is that we are that bad. And we do deserve eternal separation from God. And so for you as a believer, thinking about this topic is hugely important for your faith because it, it makes you recognize how grateful you are that God has saved you. And it should give you an urgency to share Christ with other people as you live your life on mission. I want to bring it to one quote by Francis Chan. He says, We are bound by the words of the Creator, the one who will do what is right, the one who invented justice and knows perfectly what the unbeliever deserves. 
God has never asked us to figure out his justice or to see if his way of doing things is morally right. He has only asked us to embrace his word and bow the knee, to tremble at his word, as Isaiah says. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. God, we thank you for giving us enough truth that we can respond to it. We know we don't know everything, but we know that you know everything, and we trust you. We know that you're good. We know you provide a way out. We pray, God, that anyone in this room that doesn't know you would reach out to you this morning through prayer and say, Christ, I want to follow you. God, I want to believe in you. I want you to change my life and make me new, transform me into your likeness. We pray that happens this morning. We pray this in your name. Amen.